Chapter 7. Federation. Let us now take up certain vaguely constructive proposals which seem at present to be very much in people's minds. They find their cardinal expression in a book called Union Now by Mr. Clarence K. Streit, which has launched the magic word, Federation, upon the world. The democracies of the world are to get together upon a sort of enlargement of the federal constitution of the United States, which produced one of the bloodiest civil wars in all history, and then all will be well with us. Let us consider whether this word, federation, is of any value in organizing the Western Revolution. I would suggest it is. I think it may be a means of mental release for many people who would otherwise have remained dully resistant to any sort of change. This federation project has an air of reasonableness. It is attractive to a number of influential people who wish with the minimum of adaptation to remain influential in a changing world, and particularly is it attractive to what I may call the liberal conservative elements of the prosperous classes in America and Great Britain and the Oslo countries, because it puts the most difficult aspect of the problem, the need for collective socialization, so completely in the background that it can be ignored. This enables them to take quite a bright and hopeful view of the future without any serious hindrance to their present preoccupations. They think that federation, reasonably defined, may suspend the possibility of war for a considerable period and so lighten the burden of taxation that the present crushing demands on them will relax and they will be able to resume, on a slightly more economical scale perhaps, their former way of living. Everything that gives them hope and self-respect and preserves their homes from the worst indignities of panic, appeasement, treason hunting and the rest of it, is to be encouraged, and meanwhile their sons will have time to think and it may be possible so to search, ransack and rationalize the strike project as to make a genuine and workable scheme for the socialization of the world. In the fate of Homo sapiens I examined the word democracy with some care, since it already seemed likely that great quantities of our young men were to be asked to cripple and risk their lives for its sake. I showed that it was still a very incompletely realized aspiration, that its complete development involved socialism and a level of education and information attained as yet by no community in the world. Mr. Strike gives a looser, more rhetorical statement, a more idealistic statement, shall we say, dash, of his conception of democracy, the sort of statement that would be considered wildly exaggerated even if it was war propaganda, and though unhappily it is remote from any achieved reality, he proceeds without further inquiry as if it were a description of existing realities in what he calls the democracies, of the world. In them he imagines he finds, governments of the people, by the people, for the people. In the book I have already cited I discuss what is democracy? And where is democracy? I do my best there to bring Mr. Strike down to the harsh and difficult facts of the case. I will go now a little more into particulars in my examination of his project. His founder democracies are to be, the American Union, the British Commonwealth, specifically the United Kingdom, the Federal Dominion of Canada, the Commonwealth of Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, Ireland, the French Republic, Belgium, the Netherlands, the Swiss Confederation, Denmark, Norway, Sweden and Finland. Scarcely one of these, as I have shown in that former book, is really a fully working democracy. And the Union of South Africa is a particularly bad and dangerous case of race tyranny. Ireland is an incipient religious war and not one country but two. Poland, I note, does not come into Mr. Streit's list of democracies at all. His book was written in 1938 when Poland was a totalitarian country holding, in defiance of the League of Nations, Vilna, which it had taken from Lithuania, large areas of non-Polish country it had conquered from Russia, and fragments gained by the dismemberment of Czechoslovakia. 
It only became a democracy, even technically and for a brief period, before its collapse in September 1939, when Mr. Chamberlain was so foolish as to drag the British Empire into a costly and perilous war, on its behalf. But that is by the way. None of these 15, or 10, founder democracies, are really democracies at all. So we start badly. But they might be made socialist democracies and their federation might be made something very real indeed at a price. The USSR is a federated socialist system, which has shown a fairly successful political solidarity during the past two decades, whatever else it has done or failed to do. Now let us help Mr. Strike to convert his federation from a noble but extremely rhetorical aspiration into a living reality. He is aware that this must be done at a price, but I want to suggest that that price is, from what I judge to be his point of view, far greater, and the change much simpler, more general and possibly even closer at hand, than he supposes. He is disposed to appeal to existing administrative organizations, and it is questionable whether they are the right people to execute his designs. One of the difficulties he glosses over is the possible reluctance of the India office to hand over the control of India, Ceylon and Burma he does not mention, to the new federation government, which would also, I presume, take charge of the fairly well-governed and happy fifty-odd million people of the Dutch East Indies, the French colonial empire, the West Indies and so on. This, unless he proposes merely to rechristen the India office, etc., is asking for an immense outbreak of honesty and competence on the part of the new federal officialdom. It is also treating the possible contribution of these five or six hundred million of dusky peoples to the new order with a levity inconsistent with democratic ideals. Quite a lot of these people have brains which are as good or better than normal European brains. You could educate the whole world to the not very exalted level of a Cambridge graduate in a single lifetime, if you had schools, colleges, apparatus and teachers enough. The radio, the cinema, the gramophone, the improvements in both production and distribution, have made it possible to increase the range and effectiveness of a gifted teacher a thousandfold. We have seen intensive war preparations galore, but no one has dreamt yet of an intensive educational effort. None of us really like to see other people being educated. They may be getting an advantage over our privileged selves. Suppose we overcome that primitive jealousy. Suppose we speed up as we are now physically able to do the education and enfranchisement of these huge undeveloped reservoirs of human capacity. Suppose we tack that on the union now idea. Suppose we stipulate that federation, wherever it extends, means a new and powerful education. In Bengal, in Java, in the Congo Free State, quite as much as in Tennessee or Georgia or Scotland or Ireland. Suppose we think a little less about gradual enfranchisement by votes and experiments in local autonomy and all these old ideas, and a little more about the enfranchisement of the mind. Suppose we drop that old cant about politically immature peoples. There is one direction in which Mr. Streit's proposals are open to improvement. Let us turn to another in which he does not seem to have realized all the implications of his proposal. This great union is to have a union money and a union customs-free economy. What follows upon that? More I think than he realizes. There is one aspect of money to which the majority of those that discuss it seem to be incurably blind. You cannot have a theory of money or any plan about money by itself in the air. Money is not a thing in itself, it is a working part of an economic system. Money varies in its nature with the laws and ideas of property in a community. As a community moves towards collectivism and communism, for example, money simplifies out. 
money is a necessary in a communism as it is in any other system, but its function therein is at its simplest. Payment in kind to the worker gives him no freedom of choice among the goods the community produces. Money does. Money becomes the incentive that works the worker, and nothing more. But directly you allow individuals not only to obtain goods for consumption, but also to obtain credit to produce material for types of production outside the staple productions of the state, the question of credit and debt arises and money becomes more complicated. With every liberation of this or that product or service from collective control to business or experimental exploitation, the play of the money system enlarges and the laws regulating what you may take for it, the company laws, bankruptcy laws and so forth increase. In any highly developed collective system the administration will certainly have to give credits for hopeful experimental enterprises. When the system is not collectivism, monetary operations for gain are bound to creep in and become more and more complicated. Where most of the substantial side of life is entrusted to uncoordinated private enterprise, the intricacy of the money apparatus increases enormously. Monetary manipulation becomes a greater and greater factor in the competitive struggle, not only between individuals and firms, but between states. As Mr. Streit himself shows, in an excellent discussion of the abandonment of the gold standard, inflation and deflation become devices in international competition. Money becomes strategic, just as pipelines and railways can become strategic. This being so it is plain that for the federal union a common money means an identical economic life throughout the union. And this too is implied also in Mr. Streit's customs-free economy. It is impossible to have a common money when a dollar or a pound, or whatever it is, can buy this, that or the other advantage in one state and is debarred from anything but bare purchases for consumption in another. So that this federal union is bound to be a uniform economic system. There can be only very slight variations in the control of economic life. In the preceding sections the implacable forces that make for the collectivization of the world or disaster, have been exposed. It follows that federation means practically uniform socialism within the federal limits, leading, as state after state is incorporated, to world socialism. There manifestly we carry Mr. Strite farther than he realizes he goes as yet. For it is fairly evident that he is under the impression that a large measure of independent private business is to go on throughout the union. I doubt if he imagines it is necessary to go beyond the partial socialization already achieved by the New Deal. But we have assembled evidence to show that the profit scramble, the wild days of uncorrelated business are over forever. And again though he realizes and states very clearly that governments are made for man and not man for governments, though he applauds the great declarations of the convention that created the American Constitution, wherein, we the people of the United States overrode the haggling of the separate states and established the American Federal Constitution, nevertheless he is curiously chary of superseding any existing legal governments in the present world. He is chary of talking of, we the people of the world. But many of us are coming to realize that all existing governments have to go into the melting pot, we believe that it is a world revolution which is upon us, and that in the great struggle to evoke a westernized world socialism, contemporary governments may vanish like straw hats in the rapids of Niagara. Mr. Strite, however, becomes extraordinarily legal-minded at this stage. I do not think that he realizes the forces of destruction that are gathering and so I think he hesitates to plan a reconstruction upon anything like the scale that may become possible. He evades even the obvious necessity that under a federal government the monarchies of Great Britain, Belgium, Norway, Sweden, Holland, if they survive at all, must become like the mediatized sovereigns of the component states of the former German Empire, mere ceremonial vestiges. 
perhaps he thinks that, but he does not say it outright. I do not know if he has pondered the New York World Fair of 1939 nor the significance of the royal visit to America in that year, and thought how much there is in the British system that would have to be abandoned if his federation is to become a reality. In most of the implications of the word, it must cease to be British. His illustrative constitution is achieved with an altogether forensic disregard of the fundamental changes in human conditions to which we have to adapt ourselves or perish. He thinks of war by itself and not as an eruption due to deeper maladaptations. But if we push his earlier stipulations to their necessary completion, we need not trouble very much about that sample constitution of his, which is to adjust the balance so fairly among the constituent states. The abolition of distance must inevitably substitute functional associations and loyalties for local attributions, if human society does not break up altogether. The local divisions will melt into a world collectivity and the main conflicts in a progressively unifying federation are much more likely to be these between different worldwide types and associations of workers. So far with Union Now. One of Mr. Streit's outstanding merits is that he has had the courage to make definite proposals on which we can bite. I doubt if a European could have produced any such book. Its naive political legalism, its idea of salvation by constitution, and its manifest faith in the magic beneficence of private enterprise, are distinctly in the vein of an American, almost a pre-New Deal American, who has become, if anything, more American, through his experiences of the deepening disorder of Europe. So many Americans still look on at world affairs like spectators at a ball game who are capable of vociferous participation but still have no real sense of participation, they do not realize that the ground is moving under their seats also, and that the social revolution is breaking surface to engulf them in their turn. To most of us to most of us over 40 at any rate their idea of a fundamental change in our way of life is so unpalatable that we resist it to the last moment. Mr. Strike betrays at times as vivid a sense of advancing social collapse as I have, but it has still to occur to him that that collapse may be conclusive. There may be dark ages, a relapse into barbarism, but somewhen and somehow he thinks man must recover. George Bernard Shaw has recently been saying the same thing. It may be worse than that. I have given Mr. Strike scarcely a word of praise, because that would be beside the mark here. He wrote his book sincerely as a genuine contribution to the unsystematic world conference that is now going on, admitting the possibility of error, demanding criticism, and I have dealt with it in that spirit. Unfortunately his word has gone much further than his book. His book says definite things and even when one disagrees with it, it is good as a point of departure. But a number of people have caught up this word, federation, and our minds are distracted by a multitude of appeals to support federal projects with the most various content or with no content at all. All the scores and hundreds of thousands of nice people who are signing peace pledges and so forth a few years ago, without the slightest attempt in the world to understand what they meant by peace, are now echoing this new magic word with as little conception of any content for it. They did not realize that peace means so complicated and difficult an ordering and balancing of human society that it has never been sustained since man became man, and that we have wars and preparatory interludes between wars because that is a much simpler and easier sequence for our willful, muddle-headed, suspicious and aggressive species. These people still think we can get this new and wonderful state of affairs just by clamoring for it. And having failed to get peace by saying peace over and over again, they are now with an immense sense of discovery saying, Federation. 
What must happen to men in conspicuous public positions I do not know, but even an irresponsible literary man like myself finds himself inundated with innumerable lengthy private letters, hysterical postcards, pamphlets from budding organizations, declarations to sign, demands for subscriptions, all in the name of the new panacea, all as vain and unproductive as the bleating of lost sheep. And I cannot open a newspaper without finding some eminent contemporary writing a letter to it, saying gently, firmly and bravely, the same word, sometimes with bits of union now tacked onto it, and sometimes with minor improvements, but often with nothing more than the bare idea. All sorts of idealistic movements for world peace which have been talking quietly to themselves for years and years have been stirred up to follow the new banner. Long before the Great War there was a book by Sir Max Wechter, a friend of King Edward VII, advocating the United States of Europe, and that inexact but flattering parallelism to the United States of America has recurred frequently, as a face thrown out by Monsieur Bryant for example, and as a project put forward by an Austrian-Japanese writer, Count Kudenhofkalergi, who even devised a flag for the Union. The main objection to the idea is that there are hardly any states completely in Europe, except Switzerland, San Marino, Andorra and a few of the Versailles creations. Almost all the other European states extend far beyond the European limits both politically and in their sympathies and cultural relations. They trail with them more than half mankind. About a tenth of the British Empire is in Europe and still less of the Dutch Empire, Russia, Turkey, France, are less European than not, Spain and Portugal have their closest links with South America. Few Europeans think of themselves as Europeans. I, for example, am English, and a large part of my interests, intellectual and material, are transatlantic. I dislike calling myself British, and I like to think of myself as a member of a great English-speaking community, which spreads irrespective of race and colour round and about the world. I am annoyed when an American calls me a foreigner, dash, war with America would seem to me just as insane as war with Cornwall and I find the idea of cutting myself off from the English-speaking peoples of America and Asia to follow the flag of my Austrian-Japanese friend into a federally bunched-up European extremely unattractive. It would, I suggest, be far easier to create the United States of the world, which is Mr. Streit's ultimate objective, than to get together the so-called continent of Europe into any sort of unity. I find most of these United States of Europe movements are now jumping onto the Federation bandwagon. My old friend and antagonist, Lord David Davies, for instance, has recently succumbed to the infection. He was concerned about the problem of a world pax in the days when the League of Nations Society and other associated bodies were amalgamated in the League of Nations Union. He was struck then by an idea, an analogy, and the experience was unique for him. He asked why individuals went about in modern communities in nearly perfect security from assault and robbery, without any need to bear arms. His answer was the policeman. And from that he went on to the question of what was needed for states and nations to go their ways with the same blissful immunity from violence and plunder, and it seemed to him a complete and reasonable answer to say, an international policeman. And there you were. He did not see, he is probably quite incapable of seeing, that a state is something quite different in its nature and behavior from an individual human and being. When he was asked to explain how that international policeman was to be created and sustained, he just went on saying international policeman. He has been saying it for years. Sometimes it seems it is to be the League of Nations, sometimes the British Empire, sometimes an international air force, which is to undertake this grave responsibility. The bench before which the policeman is to hail the offender and this position of the lock-up are not indicated. 
finding our criticisms uncongenial, his lordship went off with his great idea, like a penguin which has found an egg, to incubate it alone. I hope he will be spared to say international policeman for many years to come, but I do not believe he has ever perceived or ever will perceive that, brilliant as his inspiration was, it still left vast areas of the problem in darkness. Being a man of considerable means, he has been able to sustain a new commonwealth movement and publish books and a periodical in which his one great idea is elaborated rather than developed. But I will not deal further with the very incoherent multitude that now echoes this word, federation. Many among them will cease to celebrate further and fall by the wayside, but many will go on thinking, and if they go on thinking they will come to perceive more and more clearly the realities of the case. Federation, they will feel, is not enough. So much for the present, Federalist, front. As a fundamental basis of action, as a declared end, it seems hopelessly vague and confused and, if one may coin a phrase, hopelessly optimistic. But since the concept seems to be the way to release a number of minds from belief in the sufficiency of a League of Nations, associated or not associated with British imperialism, it has been worthwhile to consider how it can be amplified and turned in the direction of that full and open-eyed worldwide collectivization which a study of existing conditions obliges us to believe is the only alternative to the complete degeneration of our species.